But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. Man, some of you are getting it, and that was from memory. Really impressive. Now, all of us say that. It'll come on the screen. Say it with us. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. Now, let me ask you to stand. Let's say that nice and loud. Declare that truth together, Life Point. Say it with me. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of this verse that we've already read. If this ever sinks deep in our heart, it is a game changer. May it sink deeper today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated if you would, please. Many of us probably this week saw social media feed or through our um, news feed, the tragedy that took place in Boulder, Colorado. You see the 10 people who died and you think this weekend, their family members' weekend looks very different and every weekend from here will look different for them. And something inside of us craves justice when this kind of thing happens, don't we? I mean, after all, when you see injustice all around in the fallen world in which we live, I believe it reflects that we are made in God's image and he is a God of justice and so we immediately desire justice. Think about it. You never had to teach your kids to say it's not fair. They're born with the desire for justice. You don't have to teach your grandkids that. And yet we watch all the time people who are good die young and people who are evil live long. We see people who are good get deeper in poverty. We see people who seem wicked get wealthier. Sometimes crime does pay and all of us think it's not fair. And maybe you feel that way today with something that's going on in your life. Maybe it's your marriage, the marriage you wish you had, the marriage you used to have. Maybe it's the kids that have gone a different direction or the kids that you don't have or the grandkids. Maybe it's something with your health, with your job. And you can't help but think because of that thing in your life, there's some area that you think it's not fair. And sometimes it's just good to say it out loud and own it. So that's what we're going to do right now. Say those three words with me, like your kids used to say or your neighbor's kids used to say. Say it nice and loud. Say those three words with me. It's Doesn't that feel good? Some of you said it twice. It feels good to say. It's not fair. It's something I believe we have been in, uh, ingrained into our hearts before birth as image bearers like God who desires justice. As soon as we see injustice, we cling. We just cling and we say, it's not fair. Now, if you're here and you're visiting with someone, maybe you're not even a follower of Jesus and you're just checking this out. Somebody bribed you with a free meal today and you're here. Number one, we're grateful that you're here and I mean that. And you may wonder, well, what do people who follow God, how do they wrestle with this reality of it's not fair? Let me just tell you, those of us who follow God, we wrestle with this all the time too. We're constantly asking, God, where are you? Why would you allow this? Why aren't you intervening? Why would you not end this suffering? Why do you allow Boulder, Colorado? And we aren't the first ones to wrestle with this. You may remember in the Old Testament, thousands of years ago, there was a man named Job who said, God, I am so frustrated with you. He even said, 
God, I want you to come down to the courtyard and I want you to explain yourself. Well, it's like, whoa, Job, calm down a little bit, right? But let's be honest, don't we feel that way sometimes too? And then we flip to the New Testament. This is why scripture is so important to really have a grasp. And all of a sudden, we see clear evidence that our God is in touch with our sufferings. That our God sent his son to leave a perfect place of justice, to come to a place of injustice, because he cares so much about our struggles and our suffering and all of our it's not fairs in life. And what we're going to look at today is the crucifixion, which without a doubt is the greatest example of injustice in all of history. It's the greatest injustice that was ever perpetrated. We're going to look at the crucifixion, and if you feel like there's any part of your life where it's not fair, well, Jesus knows exactly how you feel. You see, the New Testament, it turns out, talks a lot more about the cross than the manger. A lot more about the death of Jesus than the birth of Jesus. In fact, if you took Christianity, the symbol of Christianity is not a manger. The symbol of Christianity is not a building. The symbol of Christianity is not an org chart or a ladder. The symbol of Christianity is a cross, which is the symbol of the greatest injustice in human history. Christianity knows all about injustice. Our faith is based on it. We know about it's not fair because our Savior lived it's not fair. If you got your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to Mark chapter 15? In fact, where is Eloise? Eloise is in the house somewhere. Look back there. Eloise told me this morning, Mark, I've started bringing my Bible, and she's got it back there this morning. Would you just let Eloise know? Way to go. I'm glad to see that. Mark chapter 14, or Mark chapter 15. Now, if you're new and you've been coming or you haven't been coming, let me catch you up real quick because we're in week four of a series. And let me just recap it in a couple of sentences. Here's, the, here's what we're doing. We're going through the last week of the life of Jesus. You say, why is that so important? Because it's the week that changed the world. And then the last week of Jesus, it began on a Sunday much like this. As we're approaching Easter, we often call this the Passion Week. And on a Sunday like this, that final week began, and Jesus entered the temple, or rather he entered Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, along with thousands, maybe tens of thousands of other Jewish people who were coming there to celebrate the annual Passover. But this time when he entered Jerusalem, thousands of people began to scream, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus hears the word Hosanna, Hosanna ringing in his ear. The next day on Monday, he goes back into Jerusalem, and this time he goes up to the temple where he overturns the tables because there's so much injustice happening as the Gentiles are being neglected, as worship of God is being neglected. But then he spends the rest of the day healing and teaching. He comes back again on Tuesday and Wednesday. He's doing the same thing. Meanwhile, the, the, the religious leaders and the elders and the Sanhedrin, this, political, this, this, this judicial body made up of religious and political people, they begin to plot to have Jesus and they begin to whisper just to each other, just behind closed doors. They would say things like, let's crucify him. Let's, let's crucify him. They wouldn't say it out loud. That would just be too too offensive to the average ear. And they begin to plot the greatest injustice in history. And then we get to Thursday of that week. It's a special week. We looked at a special day in that week. We looked at it last week where Jesus and the disciples gather around and they have the Last Supper. And there he reveals that there is one of them who will betray him, Judas. And then at the end of the meal, you may remember, they begin to leave and he goes, oh, by the way, all of you will eventually 
fall away. Peter's like, no, not me. Never, never, never. They go over to Gethsemane, and there Jesus is arrested. And sure enough, every one of the disciples fled and deserted Jesus. And then trials begin. And by now, we're early Friday morning. Early Friday morning. And the religious people who are trying Jesus have one goal. They want to sentence him to a crucifixion. You say, why is that so important? Because the crucifixion was the most exhausting, the most excruciating, the most humiliating, the most shame-filled way someone could die. And they wanted to make an example of Jesus for two reasons. One, they wanted to let the rest of the Jewish people know, don't ever follow anyone other than us. And number two, he claimed to be the Messiah, and we just proved that he's not by crucifying him. But there's one big hurdle they have to overcome in order to get the sentence of crucifixion that they want. And we'll look at it in just a second. But first, I hope you have your Bibles today. Because today's message is going to be a little unusual as we look back at the darkest day in history. Yet when God did some of his most beautiful work on our behalf, And if you're like me, I will read the story the whole time in the back of my mind feeling it's not fair. And if you feel that way, you will resonate with our Savior. So let's read this story, this sacred story together. Beginning in Mark chapter 15, and we will begin in verse 1. Mark chapter 15, let's begin together in verse 1. It says, very early in the morning... The chief priest with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Now here's what's unique. You've got to know the backstory because for three years, Jesus has been walking around. He's been performing miracles. He's been displaying his power. He's been healing people. And he's got this growing fan base, so to speak, people who are worshiping him wherever he would go. That's why there was a crowd of people waiting for him when he came into Jerusalem saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Meanwhile, there's another group of people who are growing in their opposition. These are the ones who are just listed, the religious, the the, uh, high priests, and the Sanhedrin, who are opposed to Jesus because he is a threat. Yet they realize with all the Jewish people who are gathered for Passover there in the city, They have to be careful because if they do something publicly against this Jesus who's worshipped, they're going to have a riot on their hands. So very early in the morning, it says, before the general population is awake, they want to do something quietly. They want to do something quickly so that they can have the sentence that they ultimately want. But remember, there's a big hurdle, and here's the hurdle. The hurdle is, though they want a crucifixion, they they don't have the authority to give a crucifixion. It turns out they have their own judicial system as Jewish people, But they're still under the Roman oppressive empire. And the Roman empire says, knock yourself out any sentence that you want to give. One exception, capital punishment, you cannot crucify someone without our stamp of approval, without our authority. And that's where Pilate comes into the story. They're going to Pilate not because they want to. He's one of their arch enemies. He's part of the Roman government. But these two enemies become bedfellows because they now have a common enemy, a common objective. They want Jesus crucified. Now look at verse 2. Pilate says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Don't you sometimes wonder, 
Oh, I know there's something in there Jesus is saying. What's he saying? I know that's good. I know that's profound. I'm just not real sure right on first blush exactly what he's getting at. And he says, you have said so. And then the evidence begins to mount from his accusers, from the prosecuting attorneys, so to speak. The chief priests accused him of many things. Apparently, Jesus remains quiet because Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. If you have your Bibles, I would write there Isaiah 53.7, because this is referencing exactly what's happening in this scene. When in Isaiah 53.7, we are told that as a sheep to the slaughter, a lamb to the slaughter, a sheep to its shearers, does not say a word, so he will not say a word. And here we see the lamb not saying a word. Verse 6 Now it was, and this is where the curveball comes into the story. This is where the unexpected thing that doesn't really make sense in our culture but made perfect sense 2,000 years ago. Now it was the custom at the festival, which is of course Passover, to release a prisoner whom the people requested. So there was a man named Barabbas. We'll talk about him a little bit later. He was in prison with the insurrectionists. People who are basically terrorists trying to overthrow the government. And Barabbas had committed murder in the uprising. That's an important element. And the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. In other words, at this time of year, just to appease the biggest city in the nation, the Roman government would say, okay, I know it's Passover, just to make everybody happy and to kind of keep everybody at bay, we're going to release one prisoner, you get to choose who that is. And there'd be somebody popular they would pick, and they would say, okay, that's the one we want released this year. Roman government would say, okay, you're free. Everybody's happy for another year. And they feel like, okay, we're keeping you happy with this one prisoner. It's kind of an easy way to keep peace. Well, this year, Pilate thinks, I'm going to outsmart them. They're bringing Jesus to me with these made-up charges. I'm going to choose Barabbas, who everybody hates. And there's no way they'll choose Barabbas over Jesus. And I'll make them choose. They'll choose Jesus to free And I won't have to condemn a man I don't believe deserves to be condemned. But of course we know that is not how the story will go. Look at verse 9. Pilate says, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? In other words, instead of Barabbas? Knowing that it was out of their self-interest. See, Pilate already sees through the chief priests. He already sees through the elders. They're clearly motivated by their own jealousy. But the chief priest, look at verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. And in this moment, you can imagine the emotional manipulation that's taking place in the crowd. Can you just envision the scene there before Pilate? We've got Barabbas on one side, we've got Jesus on the other, and he's like, surely, you, what do you want me to do with the king of the Jews? What do you want me to do with this one who's really done nothing wrong, where we have one over here who's clearly a murderer? What do you want me to do? And the chief priests who are out in the crowd, they start going, Barabbas, 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 Barabbas. And the crowd starts going, Barabbas, Barabbas. Let's release Barabbas. And people don't even know why. They just know they want Barabbas released. Jesus all of a sudden becomes the arch enemy of the crowd who walks in wanting one sentence, Jesus to be crucified. The emotion is dangerous. The energy in the air is beginning to turn and all of a sudden Pilate has a very difficult decision before him because his job is to keep the crowd calm, to not allow a riot. And now all of a sudden, look at the verse 12. It says, well, what shall I do then? 
with this one that you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked. He said, what do you want me to do with him then? Because clearly you want him released. What am I supposed to do with him? Someone whose evidence is so weak and you coming and saying he's just claiming to be God. I might think he's crazy, but that's not an offense. And for the first time, all the elders and all the high priests, instead of whispering it quietly, they shouted out loud in public, and they say of Jesus, crucify him. And I can't help but imagine that Pilate would have been appalled to hear their boldness, their lack of empathy, to hear them shout out, crucify him. After having heard the evidence, crucify him, they shouted. Pilate says, why? What crime has he committed? And they shouted louder, crucify him. Pilate finds himself in a bind and wanting to, cruci- wanting to satisfy the crowd. He releases Barabbas, the murderer. And he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Pilate knows if I release Jesus, I have a right. I cannot have that. If I release Barabbas, I'm still in trouble because the Roman government wants him to be crucified. But in the end, his ultimate job is to keep the crowd calm. And so he feels like he takes the safest choice, and that is to have Jesus flogged. In fact, one of the other Gospels tells us that he was actually trying to have Jesus flogged in the hopes that what they call the half-death, that he would end up bringing empathy upon the crowd, and they would go, okay, that's enough, that's enough vengeance. But instead, they kept saying, crucify him. It's fascinating that we're on Friday of this Passion Week, of this final week of Jesus. And on Sunday, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, remember, what rang in his ear was, Hosanna. And by Friday, what's ringing in his ear is, crucify him. That fast, the table has turned. And now, they begin the flogging, and then they will crucify him. And I will give you a warning as we read these next few graphic verses that my goal will not to be sensationalized, but to do justice to the violence that was done to our Savior. I believe these are very sacred words as we read them. Verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium. And they called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and they would spit upon him. Calling on their, falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, They took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. The goal here is to humiliate by stripping Jesus. The common practice was to take a flagrum, which you can see here. It often has little pieces of glass. It has pieces of bone. It will have metal balls. And they would take this and it would act as a whip which tore and so when they would flog, they would take Jesus and they put him in a place of vulnerability and they would take that and over and over repeatedly 
put that to his back so that it not only ripped through the skin, it would rip through the muscle, and eventually there would be broken ribs, and there would be uh, blood that would fill the chest cavity, and eventually often there was partial or complete collapse of lungs. At this point, Jesus is completely unrecognizable between the swelling and the bleeding and the tears in his body. And now, they lead him to be crucified. Verse 22. And a certain man, that everyone who would have been reading this in the first century would have perhaps known, from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, he was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. After all, Jesus is completely on the verge of shock, maybe on the verge of even passing out, couldn't physically carry the cross, and so this man named Simon does. And then that's where they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. This would have been a common practice to lessen the pain, to lessen some of the experience, and Jesus, knowing he'd already committed in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but your will be done. God, if you want this cup of wrath to come upon me, I will take it. I don't want it, he said, but I will take it. And here they offer an opportunity to lessen it. And he says, no, I've already made that decision in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if this is your cup of wrath, I will take it all. And then there's the next three words. Mark, who focuses on the suffering before the cross, is very matter-of-fact at this point in the story. They crucified him. That's it. Some of the other Gospels give more details. Mark seems to think that's sufficient to know that prophecy was fulfilled, the debt was paid, justice and mercy meet when they crucified him. Then he goes on to say, dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. You may think, well, what clothes are they talking about? But once again, they strip him here. And the goal was complete humiliation, to be completely exposed. And the truth is, when our artists go back and render this moment, they usually will partially clothe Jesus because we just aren't comfortable with this level of vulnerability, even now. The goal was clear. And verse 25 says, It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The writers, the written notice above on the board where the charges would be laid simply said, the king of the Jews. In the next few verses, it tells us that people were mocking him, including one of the soldiers to his right, as well as the people who were walking by, or not soldiers, but one of the criminals to the right, people who were walking by who were mocking him, saying, hey, you said you would raise up the temple in three days. Why don't you save yourself? And over and over, the people are mocking him, having no idea that he's actually doing what he is intentionally come to do to lay down his life for them for me and for you and then we get down to verse 33 and we see a supernatural occurrence on the cross it says at noon darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon and at three in the afternoon Jesus cried out in a loud voice Elo, Elo, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those standing near heard, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge, offered it to Jesus. No, leave him alone. See if Elijah comes and takes him down, one said. And then it finally concludes. With a loud cry, with a scream, 
Jesus breathed his last. And John's gospel tells us the last scream, the last cry, is where he said, It is finished. The full wrath of God has been poured out on me. And the cup is empty. Interesting, in the Old Testament, we see over and over that darkness is often a supernatural sign of God's judgment. And for three hours, we see the supernatural judgment of God for our sins poured out on Jesus. And then the last that we'll read today, it says in verse, it says, The curtain at the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, which of course signifies that we now have an immediate and full access to God. There is no priest or no person through whom we go. And when the centurion, the soldier there, the Roman soldier, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how Jesus died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Surely this man Think about who this is. This man, this centurion, he has seen hundreds of people die a crucifixion. He is an expert at what he does. He has another front row seat to another day on the job to another crucifixion. And at the end, he said, there is something different about what I just witnessed. Surely this man is the Son of God. Which is fascinating because the book of Mark begins saying it's got a Roman audience. And at the very end, it ends with a Roman centurion saying, he's the Son of God. There are so many witnesses that we could learn from on this dark day. There's Pilate, there's Simon, there's the disciples, there's Mary, there's the uh, chief priests, there's the elders, there's the Sanhedrin. There are all these people who witnessed this day. But as we close today, there's one in particular whose perspective I think is completely unique. And that's Barabbas. You know Barabbas, what his name means? His name means son of a father. How nonsensical is that? It's almost like John Doe today. It's just a name of anonymity. We don't see him before and we don't see him after. He just shows up in this one moment in scripture. Now you imagine Barabbas, how his Friday started off. Barabbas is a man who's murdered. He's a man who's hated. He's a man who knows his consequence is a crucifixion. There is no doubt in his mind. It's just a matter of when. He's accepted it. He knows it. Everyone does. And all of a sudden, can you imagine his reaction when he's in his cell, and all of a sudden the cell door swings open, and a Roman centurion walks in and says, Barabbas, come with me. Come with you? Wow, what's going on? A little bit confused. The Roman soldier perhaps tells him, well, as you know, on Passover we release a prisoner, and you're one of the final two candidates. Barabbas thinks, wow, could it be? I knew of this. I knew of this practice. And you know what he begins to think? He begins to think, all I've got to do is beat one, right? All I've got to do is be a little bit better than the other defendant. I hope they brought one of my fellow insurrectionists. I hope they brought somebody who murdered more people than me. I hope they brought another snake in the grass who people hate more than me. I hope there's someone that I look good compared to Imagine his reaction when he walked out into that praetorium, when he walked out into that courtyard, and all of a sudden he looks over and it dawns on him, oh wait, I'm going up against Jesus? 
Like, I've heard about him. Everybody's heard about him. All he does is go around healing. All he does is go around performing miracles. All he does is sacrificially live his life for the benefit of others. All he does is talk about living a life of love. I'm going against Jesus. Like, I don't care what I've done. I lose. We all lose if we go up against Jesus. Bar- uh, Barnabas walks out. And he, Barabbas walks out, and he thinks, i got to go against Jesus. I'm a murderer. He's God the Son, or at least he thinks he's some miracle rabbi who walks around doing that. Everybody's worshiping. I'm going. I lose. And all of a sudden, the crowd, something happens, and it turns. And he starts hearing Barabbas, Barabbas. And he's thinking, what in the world's going on? And all of a sudden, you can see it on Pilate's face as well. He's shocked too. And Barabbas, it begins to dawn on him that something's not right. Internally, he must think, it's not fair. And all of a sudden, the Roman soldier walks up because Pilate looks Barabbas in the eye and says, you're released. Barabbas puts out his arms and he takes off the shackles. He takes off the shackles and he hears them hit the ground. And his mind must be spinning and he walks away and realizes he's a free man. He doesn't deserve to be. He knows that, but he is. And as he walks away a little further, he must hear the crowd. He must hear the noise. He must hear the chaos. And I wonder if he just followed from a distance just to see what would happen. Sure enough, they take Jesus, and after the flogging, they take him to Golgotha, the place of the skull, to Mount Calvary. And from a distance, perhaps, Barabbas sees Jesus on the cross, and he sees him crucified, and he must think, it's not fair. That should be me on the cross. He's glad he's free, but he doesn't understand why. And I wonder if someone would have walked up to Barabbas and said, Barabbas, I saw what happened back there at the courtroom scene. Way to go, you're free. I mean, now you get to do whatever you want. You get to pursue any dream in your life. Barabbas, isn't this great that you're going to have some financial opportunities? Isn't it great you're going to have some career opportunities? Aren't those going to be great blessings in your life? Barabbas says, no, I should be on that cross That is the greatest blessing, is that that man on the cross, Jesus, rescued me. End of story. No blessing will ever match that. And here we stand in the 21st century, and we are so blessed. But the greatest blessing in our life is that Jesus rescued us. End of story. He took our cross. We, like Barabbas, are guilty. Now, I know what you might be thinking. I think this often as well. Well, come on. Is it really? Like, I'm not a murderer. Like, I don't, maybe you've never been in jail. Like, I haven't done anything that bad. Sure, I haven't been perfect, but, and I love it when people say that as if we needed to hear that. Well, I haven't been perfect. Oh, thank you. I was wondering. (laughs) I haven't murdered anybody. I mean, did God really need to go to such an extreme? I mean, couldn't, look. Couldn't he just erase my sin? Couldn't he just forgive? That's what I do. I forgive other people. Why couldn't God just do that? Why did it have to be his son on a cross? Doesn't that seem a little extreme, what we just read? And Every time I think that, and I do from time to time, I am reminded that I am underestimating my guilt. I'm underestimating my badness, my sin. A small example would be our oldest daughter, Reagan, who's 19 now. When she was about two years old, I'll never forget, Ginger, my wife, and I, we walked into her room. She had taken a permanent marker 
and some crayons and redecorated her whole room, all four walls. And the paint, and back then we had some wallpaper. And she kind of knew she had done something wrong, but she was also kind of proud of her artwork, her graffiti, her tattoo of her room. And we walked in, and here's what we're thinking. What have you done, right? Why, how did you get a hold of these, you know? And then it dawns on us, okay, we're going to have to go to the store. We're going to have to repaint. We're going to have to buy some paint, wallpaper, if we want to do that again. But who does? And then we know that we're going to have to be a day or two, like, repairing this. I could have looked at my two-year-old and said, Reagan, you go get the paint. You go get the wallpaper. You give us $200. You spend the day or two repairing this. And she would go, okay, Daddy. She didn't, cannot appreciate exactly what she's done. And she does not have the ability to fix the problem. And this is where we live as followers of God. We simply can't fully appreciate who we are and how much sin is in us. Because we're trying to compare ourselves to the Barabbases instead of to Jesus. We can't fully appreciate who we are and what we've done and we have no ability to fix it. And this is where I am so glad that life's not fair. Because fairness ended in the Garden of Eden. And I'm glad. Because a God who loves me and you so much said, I will do what's not fair. Instead of fairness, I will give mercy. And mercy is so much better than fairness. And he sent his son Jesus to pay a debt I couldn't pay so that I could have a relationship with him because he loves us that much. I love this quote by Timothy Keller. The cross reveals that we are far worse than we ever imagined and far more loved than we could ever dream. That's what God thinks of you today. Let me close with this question. If you're Able to appreciate that the cross reveals that you are far worse than you ever imagined, but you are far more loved than you could ever dream. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever surrendered your life to this Jesus? Because one of the most humbling things is to realize your badness and your need of a Savior. I want to do something a little bit unusual today. Hadn't even necessarily planned to do this. But we can't talk about the cross and not do this. I want to ask everyone, if you would, just to close your eyes. You may lower your head for just a second. I just want to talk to each of you, but I want to give you a moment of privacy. So if you would honor those around you by closing your eyes and just bowing your head just for a second, I want to talk to each of you, and here's what I want to ask you. If you're in the place where you would say, I want to surrender my life to this Jesus, the one who gave his life for me, I may not fully appreciate my badness, but I sense I need a Savior today. Would you pray this prayer right where you are today? Pray this prayer after me. No magic in the words. Say it however you want to say it, but let it be a decision of your heart. Just quietly in your spot, quietly in your own mind, would you settle this decision and pray this prayer with me today? Dear Father, I know that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And today... I make the decision to surrender my life 
to you. I want to make you the Lord and Savior of my life for the rest of my life. Use me now, God, for your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you keep your heads bowed just for a second, your eyes closed to honor your neighbors, if you prayed that prayer, I just want to tell you, after the service, if you'll go to the back behind this curtain that we have through the main center doors here, there's a little wall. If you'll go behind there, there's a group of people who will be there to pray with you, and we would love to support you in prayer. It's the greatest decision you could ever make on the darkest moment in human history. It is why he came for you and for me. Thank you for your attention this morning. I want to close with this. If you look, look up, I just want to tell you, no matter what you've done, no matter what your failure, no matter what your insecurities, no matter what injustice you've endured, you are loved. And the cross reveals that you are worse off than you could ever imagine, but more loved than you could ever dream. One more time. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Would you stand with me and let's say it together. Proclaim that truth together, Life Point. Say that with me. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Where's that? Romans 5, 8. Life Point, we're going to sing and we're going to get to worship a song that I just believe is spirit-covered. It's one of those songs, at least for me. And I know the last couple of years have been very difficult for most of the world. And the truth is, because of the pandemic, because of the division politically, racially, because of the COVID, because of the economic downturn, the struggles, and then whatever else may have been going on in your life separate from those things with your individual life, that we've been in a season of darkness, a season of division, and a season of discouragement. And here's the really good news. Our God has a way of coming to the darkest places and doing his best work. He has a way of seeing a revival on the backside when the light of the world comes to the darkest place. So here's the question I have. In this season of darkness, division, and discouragement in our culture, what if, what if, God is asking LifePoint Church to be a seed from which he will grow a revival. What if God is asking LifePoint Church to be a seed through which he will grow a revival? Are we willing? Are we ready? Father, you have a history of going to dark places and lighting it up. Father, would we be so surrendered, willing to be buried and covered and poured out for you that like a seed, 
you do a renewal. You do an awakening. You do a revival. And you and you alone get the glory. That is our prayer. We pray in the crucified name of Jesus Christ. Amen.